when I decided to include a verse from that last hymn in my sermon for this morning, I thought I should really let the worship team know that we should sing that, but I didn't get to it. So I, I thank God that the Holy Spirit, once again, is conducting our worship service. And so uh, listen for me to quote that hymn a little bit later in my message. Our text is from 1 Peter chapter 3. The passage will cover verses 1 through 6. And the title of my message is The Conduct of a Christian Wife. Now, a major problem facing Christian today is the perception of what is normal, the rule, the standard by which life is to be measured, success is to be measured. I've heard it said that we live in a post-Christian culture, but I think it's becoming more and more an anti-Christian culture. This means that most of what we think of as followers of Jesus as normal is either mocked or completely ignored. And nowhere is this more evident than in the matter of sex-based distinctions in marriage. God's design for the household assigns different vocations, that is to say callings, based on biological gender. That's the blueprint from the beginning. In other words, men, that is to say males, have one job as a husband and a father, and women, that is to say females, as wives and mother, have another. Now, it should go without saying that in a Christian household, our primary identity is as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so there is substantial overlap in the ways in which men and women relate to one another in community based on common shared humanity. But it should also go without saying that there is significant diversity in the, in the way in which these sex-based assignments or vocations are expressed. Despite what society says, God's norm remains. In his wisdom, based, I believe, both on biological differences and his word, the male Human's assignment in the household is primarily to serve as leader, protector, and provider. And the female human's assignment is a calling to support him, help him, and submit to him in his primary role. Now, modern American society, much like Greco-Roman society, which is what Peter's writing to in this letter, in some ways still supports in a in a kind of schizophrenically and somewhat randomly and without much of a pattern, you still see pockets and connections of support to this, we'll call it, creational ideal. It's inconsistent and it's somewhat incoherent, but it, it is there. So you can find in society general support for some pieces of the Christian household picture. Because of this confusion, it is easy for Christians to take the parts of culture that continue to support a biblical norm for a household and buy the whole package. It's like I was at the store the other day and there was a brown bag and it says, 
$4, you get what's ever in the bag. And so Christians purchase culture's package for the household, and they find in that grab bag a few sort of trinkets or remnants from the biblical norm. Likewise, we grew up in homes, some of us grew up in Christian homes, others didn't, in which the biblical norm is more or less inculcated in our lives as children. And so we grow up being shaped by an imperfect expression of the biblical norm, which itself is imperfectly shaped by culture. It's a complicated picture. Furthermore, the Christian culture of America or of the United States over the last two or three hundred years itself is somewhat random and schizophrenic. I'm not dismissing the great heritage that we enjoy and the freedoms of our great country. But it is fair to say that as Americans, we have not faithfully reproduced in every way the biblical norm of the household. And so we find ourselves today in a crisis, a world that has increasingly lost its way and turned its back on the Creator God, and a church that's confused in how we are to respond, particularly in terms of how we set up our households. So this is why for the next two Sundays we're going to study the biblical pattern for conduct, both for a wife, a Christian wife this morning, and for a husband, a Christian man, next Sunday. And my hope is that in studying this and looking at this together, we're going to recapture some of the beauty and vibrancy that God intended us to have. My hope is also that I will offend every single one of you at some point. So if I don't, please let me know and I'll work on it next week. The text, as I said, is 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 6. Let's give our attention now with this idea of the conduct of a Christian wife to the reading of God's word. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Let us pray. Father, your word has been read. We pray now that the thoughts on our hearts and the words of the preacher as the word is expounded and applied to our lives, Lord, would all of this be pleasing in your sight, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Conduct of a Christian wife, I see uh, there's, there's, there's enough here for you know, weeks and weeks of study and consideration, but we're going to concentrate on three practices that characterize the conduct of a Christian wife. The first practice for a Christian woman in marriage is that you must aim at character. You must aim 
had character. Take a look at verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning, Peter writes to the women in these churches that are reading his letter, he says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but you must aim at character. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now the, the ancient Roman practice of braiding hair bears almost no resemblance to, say, a French braid that one of my daughters might put in her hair at some point. Or whatever you might do with the curling iron ladies has nothing to do, almost nothing to do, with sitting in a chair for 8 to 12 hours and braiding of the hair in a fancy presentation for a woman in ancient Roman forum. Likewise, the adorning of gold jewelry was an ostentatious display of status in a society in which visual status symbols carried a lot of weight. Nevertheless, the emphasis here is not on the woman's external appearance, but on her character. Peter says, do not let your adorning be external, but instead the hidden person of the heart. He's teaching that you as a Christian wife should pursue the invisible qualities, the unseen virtues of a godly character. He makes this point by contrasting it, character development, which is internal, with things that you can see on the outside. Character development is set alongside the temptation that a woman might have of beautifying herself as a substitute in place of the development of her character or of her heart. The text says, do not let your adorning be external, but let it be internal. Adorn your heart. So however much time you take on your hair or your makeup or your outfit or your weight or whatever you might think you look like to other people, the presentation you want to make, Peter's saying, make sure your primary emphasis, your focus, is on the adorning of your heart, the character of the person inside. This inside versus outside contrast is elaborated by the phrase, a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now some, some of you as women may be more talkative than others. You might be an introvert, you might be an extrovert, you might be opinionated, you might hold your opinion to yourself. The quiet spirit isn't so much talking about your personality. The gentle and quiet spirit that is being spoken of here is a spirit of worship and prayer. Gentleness here is the meekness that our Lord Jesus commends when he said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So the quietness is one of a quietness of faith, of quiet confidence, no matter how you may choose to communicate to other people or how God may have made you in terms of how many words that you have, even the volume of your voice, the issue is, are you a woman of faith who believes that God's promises are true and that trusting and resting in these promises is the greatest investment that you can make in your adornment? I'm reminded of the ideal woman in Proverbs 31. And by the way, I, I say ideal because there is no woman who will ever live up to Proverbs 31. 
But we don't need to toss out Proverbs 31 because it's an impossible ideal. It's a beautiful articulation of the ideal virtues of a woman. And the, the poem in Proverbs 31 ends in verse 30 with this, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. I think Peter here in, in saying the hidden person of the heart is appealing to a woman to remember this, this challenge, this goal in Proverbs 31. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Not how sexy she is, not how good-looking she is, not how thin or how, how uh, any other physical attribute that she may have that society would hold up as virtuous. Jesus says something very similar when he talks about, notice Peter says, the imperishable beauty. Perishability is actually a theme in the entire letter. If you were to read Peter in, this, in, this, in one sitting and underline the occurrences of perishable and imperishable, it occurs about seven or eight times. In a small letter, that's significant. It's thematic. Peter is wanting, in the use of this word, he's wanting you to see that the things of this world, including a woman's beauty, will fade and pass away. But the things that will not pass away, that are imperishable, is the character hidden person of the heart. So I'm, again, I'm reminded of what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures where? On earth. And then this, the beautiful metaphor where moth and mold and thieves destroy. See, that's, that's our lives in this world. But the things that no one can touch, that no one can take away, the things, the treasure for a woman that is eternal is treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So we have the hidden person of the heart in 1 Peter 3. Peter wants you as women to invest in your character. And this is not easy. Becoming a woman of character takes, takes work. It takes, um, it's a painful process. You've been shaped by many influences in your life. Some come from society, come from your, from your family, from your husband. There are many voices competing with what it means to be a woman. I, I can't imagine how difficult it is to be a woman, except that it's difficult to be a man today as well. But for my sisters and mothers in Christ, I, I am sympathizing with the impossible task that you have in figuring out what it means to be a woman of character in today's world. But it must be your practice and your conduct as a Christian wife needs to prioritize character. So that's our first practice that you need to aim for or pursue as a Christian woman in marriage or if you're unmarried, by the way, as you pursue and think about marriage in the future, marriage is, is, the, um, is the state of life for most of the population. If you're a woman who is called to singleness, still the character is to be your pursuit. The second practice for a Christian woman and her conduct 
in marriage is not only aiming for character, but I'm, what I'm phrasing here is situational flexibility. Now that sounds like I'm giving a, a talk on efficiency for a factory. Situational flexibility. What are you talking about? Situational flexibility. Well, growing up, I played with a toy, some of you may have heard of it, called Gumby. You know Gumby? This green creature thing with arms and legs that bend in any direction. The fact that Gumby was a bendable toy made his name synonymous with flexibility, and so the saying Semper Gumby, it's the Latin, it's a technical phrase, which means always flexible. I'm encouraging and challenging the women in your pursuit of godly conduct in your marriage, not only to seek to have a godly character, but to employ flexibility in your conduct towards your husband. Now, where do we see flexibility in our text? It's actually all through this text. I mentioned in my opening remarks that uh, subjection or submission to your husband is part of God's created order. But if you haven't noticed, thing, this is not Eden that we live in. And so, women, you find yourselves in relationships, dating or married or recovering from a relationship, in which the men in your life have not treated you or acted towards you in a way that they ought. And so your godly pursuit of character, it sounds great on paper, but in in practice, it's quite difficult. So you need to maintain situational flexibility. It's easy to be subject to a godly, God-honoring husband named Adam before the fall. But once Adam transgresses the holy commandment of God, Strife and conflict is introduced into the marriage relationship and that impacts women in a particular way and creates a difficulty that requires active, prayerful, spirit-led flexibility. I want to give you a few examples from our passage. Verse 1 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, That's the creational pattern. Now look at the next phrase. So that even if some do not obey the word. So we have built into this passage a requirement of flexibility. The ideal situation is husbands that are obeying the word, like me, for instance. Regularly, I remind my wife that I am obeying the word, and so should she. We had a, a, a lively discussion about that just yesterday, actually. So that's the ideal situation. But even if suggests that there are are regularly going to occur in a Christian woman's life circumstances and situations in which he is not obeying the word. And now, women, you get to figure out what obedience looks like. How do you obey the word when your husband is not obeying the word? How do you subject yourself to a sinner? 
Now, I think probably, now we're, we're going back in time to when Peter was writing this, the gospel is fresh on the scene. We have no, the Roman Empire is not Christianized. The gospel is not publicized. Peter's writing this letter. It's probably being read in 60 AD. Jesus has been ascended and seated at the right hand of God for something like 25 years. James has already written his epistle. We've had the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Peter's in Rome. And Paul has gone on at least one, if not two, missionary journeys. The word is starting to get out about this resurrected Lord. And so wives who are married to husbands in the Roman manner are hearing the gospel and believing and getting baptized and becoming Christians. And their husbands, something's never changed, don't go to church. And so we have mixed marriages going on where the women are married to, to unbelieving men who do not obey the word. I think that's probably the main context here. But Peter isn't specific so that it's very possible and I think even likely that Peter intends the instruction here for you women to encompass Christian men who are out of their minds, beside themselves, and disobeying the word even though they know better. But whatever the case may be, whether you're in a Christian marriage with a husband who isn't obeying the word, or in a mixed marriage, which is to say you're not married to a Christian, where the husband doesn't know the word or doesn't care about it at all, flexibility is called for. And the wife is called to be respectful and pure, verse 2. Respect is another word for fear or reverence. And contrary to what feminism teaches, this reverential submission is what is called for in marriage as the ideal steady state. That's the nature of as God has designed it. But there are times when a woman must draw the line when her husband, disobeying the word of God in violation of the Ten Commandments, clearly steps out of God's plan for marriage. In which case, reverential respect, fear, honor, subjection might take purity, might look like the woman refusing to do what is being asked or suggested. Second example. I've already mentioned the beauty or the adornment of a woman. This also requires flexibility. Like respect and purity, beauty is a kind of Semper Gumby activity. Let's remind ourselves of a few basic truths about beauty. Number one, every woman is beautiful in some way, and every woman is beautiful in different ways. Number two, every society, every culture has standards of beauty, some of which are helpful and aligned with Scripture, and some of which are not. With these truths in mind, if a husband is disobeying the word by being critical of his wife's beauty, maybe take, for example, her weight, perhaps her choice of clothing, 
maybe her hairstyle. How will you, as a Christian wife, conduct yourself in this situation? I believe flexibility is required. You know in Proverbs 31 that beauty is vain. But at the same time, it doesn't make any sense to flout neutral cultural traditions or even positive aspects of society just because they're not enshrined in the Bible in so many words. So if your husband, in disobeying the word, is calling for a neutral standard of beauty for you, you have an opportunity to reverentially and purely, if you're able, in purity, to subject yourself to his expectation. And you have some flexibility in this as well, because beauty being what it is, is a matter of taste. So between a husband and a wife, a husband who's disobeying the word and a a wife who's seeking to obey the word, there's a tremendous amount of flexibility required in order to come to an agreement or an understanding. I realize by talking about this, we're probably talking about things or I'm proposing you discuss things that sometimes go unstated. A lot of this between a husband and a wife takes place through nonverbal communications and shrugs of the shoulder and winks of the eye and silences. But this is the field in which godly conduct for a wife must play out. There are times also, I believe, when a husband might have a good and valid and biblical observation about a wife's beauty, which a wife simply rejects. In which case, he's not disobeying the word, he's actually speaking for the Lord, maybe not very eloquently or sensitively, perhaps, guys. But in caring for our wives, we're caring for our own bodies, according to the Apostle Paul. And so by communicating to our wives what we find attractive or beautiful, we're, we're partly carrying out our role as men, <clears throat> treading sensitively. We'll touch more on this next week in terms of the husband's <clears throat> responsibility, but let me move to a third example where flexibility is called for. Fear and anxiety is warned about in our text. Verse 6 says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This appeal at the end of our passage calls on Christian women to manage their fear. Do not fear anything that's frightening. It's a strange phrase. Do not be afraid of anything that's fearful. Fear is a God-given emotion, but apparently there are times when a woman should resist fear and anxiety, and other times when she should listen to it and act upon it. I think particularly in the way that God has made women, he has made you as women to be afraid of things that your husbands may not be aware of, to worry and to be preoccupied with concerns that the men are just not paying attention to. But Peter says, don't be afraid of anything that's frightening. So don't give in to bad fear. But how do you know? 
How do you know what is a good fear and what is a bad fear? What, what is a fear that is frightening and what is a fear that is, is from the Holy Spirit? It may be if you're afraid of something, God wants you to remove yourself from a situation that endangers your person or your children. Subjection in this case jumps over the chain of command and goes directly to the Lord Jesus Christ and you must be afraid. But in other cases, the fear that you're imagining is largely in your mind and it's not grounded in reality. And women, you must not be afraid. And it's a very difficult um, calculus or equation to figure out. I believe flexibility is key. I want to close this point by illustrating uh, from our lives as missionaries. And some of you may not know this, but I'm actually a missionary pastor because I moved to a foreign country, which is to say from Arizona to New Jersey. I had to learn a new language. There's new foods and new traditions. And in fact, though some of my friends don't like to hear me say this, I'm still a missionary to New Jersey. Still trying to win the natives for Jesus. And I found out there's no handbook on how to be a missionary to the natives of South Jersey. So we had to write it ourselves. We discovered through experiment, trial and error, how to connect with people in New Jersey who don't know or love the Lord. Now, in point of fact, I have much more in common with Christians in New Jersey than non-Christians in Arizona, if you know what I'm saying. But I'll never forget the one situation where extreme missionary flexibility was called for. Pastor Phil got a phone call from someone who said, hey, Pastor Phil, I'm not able to help this year with the blessing on the bikes. What's the blessing on the bikes? Well, all the Harley riders in our area are getting together at Hooters for a blessing on the bikes, and they need someone to come and pray over their bikes so that they'll be safe when they're hot rodding. I said, where was the blessing on the bikes again? You know, Hooters, the restaurant, where they have great wings. So I looked at my wife and I explained to her, and I said, I'm not doing it. She says, are they gonna make you go in the restaurant? I'm like, I don't think so. I think it's like in the parking lot. Is everybody like fully clothed? I think they're fully clothed. You should do the blessing on the bikes. But I don't believe in blessing bikes. Bikes don't have souls. (laughs) Bikers need a blessing. So I did the blessing on the bikes. And I didn't lay hands on anyone that I shouldn't have. Let the reader understand. (laughs) A woman needs to know what her non-negotiables are which is why I started with character. Who are you as a Christian? The fundamentals. What does the good book say? You need to know it so well, I would even say to have it memorized, that it's automatic. Because when you hit these situations where you get a phone call 
or anxiety comes, or a conversation ensues about beauty, or some instruction, or difficulty, or disagreement, you need to know what you believe so that you can separate what is non-negotiable from what is flexible. No one better illustrated situational flexibility than Sarah, Abraham's husband. Sarah apparently is a role model in our text for all godly women in regards to the way in which she pursued godly character in the context of situational flexibility. First, she trusted Abraham. She believed in Abraham to move to a place that had no address. Abraham, go to a place. I'll tell you later where it is. And so the text in Genesis 12 says, Sarah went with her husband to this undetermined location. Now that is situational flexibility, ladies. Sarah also submitted or subjected herself to a scheme which was sinful, which is to say, we're not going to tell people that you're my wife. We're going to say you're my sister, which technically she was his sister. And she submitted to this unwise scheme, not once, but twice. I call this Sarah agreeing to a bad plan. We know that Abraham concocted this scheme out of unbelief and trust in God because God already told him in the land where he was going that he would be given the land of Canaan as an inheritance. It was a sealed deal. But because Abraham was a little, you know, you got to have a backup plan. Just in case God doesn't come through, Sarah, you pretend like you're my sister. Sarah also showed flexibility in her struggle against her own sin. She struggled to accept or believe that God would honor his promise to bring a child out of her old age. And so at one point when Abraham was 84, this is about nine years after Abraham was told that he was going to be the father of many nations and so forth, Sarah's like, this isn't working. This faith business, it's not working. Abraham, you need to go down and lie with my servant, Hagar, and she will bear your heir. Because I'm clearly, it's not happening with me. And finally, when the time came for Sarah to actually bear a son, 14 years after that, the son would be called Isaac. She didn't believe, but laughed at God's promise. And Itzak in Hebrew means she laughed. But her flexibility is showing up in this last example in terms of her repentance. Because what she thought was, was laughable in the beginning, her laughter turned a true celebration, the laughter of faith, and a, a spilling over of her emotions and joy, in other words, when she discovered that she was indeed with child and something analogous to the virgin birth, Sarah gives birth to a child at age 100. And Isaac was born. This is not the picture of a woman I would, at least in my mind, hold up as an example for godly Christian women to imitate for all time. And yet the Holy Spirit has given us Sarah, the wife of Abraham, as a picture of a woman whose conduct is biblical 
and who shows flexibility in the difficult situations of life. Before I conclude, there's one more practice, women, that Peter commends to you as you seek to be a godly wife. And this final practice is relying on God's grace. We actually see this with one word in my text. It's the first word in chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise. The word in some translations is in the same way. And we get our word for uh, uh, two things that are the same. Homologous. From my biology teaching days, I'm sorry. In the same way, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. What does Peter mean, or what is Peter asking you as a woman to be like? Likewise, like what, you should be asking? And the answer is, like Jesus. Likewise, like Jesus, wives be subject to your own husbands. What does this mean? Peter's trying to show you that in your life, particularly in your marriage, there's a close connection between your subjection to this sinful, imperfect man, sincere man, in most cases, as you subject yourself to that guy, you are like Jesus. And in the distribution of these sex-based roles, that is something that he will never know. You have a special connection to the Lord Jesus Christ as a woman that God has reserved for you as a woman. And that's not to be scorned. Just as Jesus had to learn obedience through what he suffered, of course, he had no sin, so must you as a Christian woman in your marriage learn through hardship and difficulty. In God's wisdom, much of the difficulty will come through your relationship. I'm sorry. We've seen this already in 1 Peter in chapter 1 where he describes trials and sufferings as that which, like fire in a precious metal, purifies and melts out and bubbles up the impurities. And Peter says, again, perishability. Your faith is more precious than gold, which, though refined by fire, perishes. See, Peter is directing your attention, women, to the imperishable treasure of God. So from this passage, I think, in 1 Peter 1.7 and related passages like Isaiah 43, we get one of the great hymns of our faith, which I mentioned in my opening remarks by John Rippon, How Firm a Foundation. When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume thy gold to refine. This is what it means to rely on God's grace. This is an essential practice for a Christian woman in marriage. Being a Christian wife means that you have faith in God. He is with you. Your marriage is breaking up. He is with you. You're seeking a husband. He is with you. You're in the throes of a disagreement. 
He is with you. You're surprised by an infidelity. He is with you. Just as he was with his own son, Jesus, and he is working out a plan in your life that you cannot imagine at the moment, but someday you will understand and rejoice. The good news is even more fundamental than your troubles. The good news is that my grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. Grace means that you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God and enabled to do something to subject yourself to another person. You are probably more gifted, possibly more intelligent, and you certainly know more about the certain situation that's under discussion. And yet God is calling you to subject yourself to this other person who is your husband. God's grace alone can enable you to do that. Grace is the strength of God for people who are weak. Grace is the power of God for the powerless. Grace is life for the lifeless. Grace is redemption for the criminal. It's spirit for the spiritually dead. And it's fuel for the empty and spent. This is God's grace. And it's ultimately grace that will enable you as a Christian woman to not be afraid, to pursue purity, to not give in to worldly temptations and defining your beauty by society's standards, to not give in to frustration, timidity, cowardice, selfishness, self-pity. And it's grace which ties together the first two practices that I've mentioned. Let's think about it. You can aim at character, which is the first practice, only by God's grace in the new birth. The only way you can pursue the woman of the biblical paradigm is if you've been born again to a living hope. It's also grace that enables you to maintain a situational flexibility. Life is throwing you, your relationship is throwing you curveballs right and left. How are you going to figure it out? You're, you're looking for a pattern, you're looking for a recipe, a formula. What should I do, God? Just tell me. Can you send me an email? And God tenderly, compassionately, lovingly says, trust me. Trust my grace. And by good judgment, sanctified wisdom, counsel of trusted friends, and many, many, many trials and errors. The conduct of a godly Christian wife moves ever closer towards glory. And you learn what to do when your husband is disobeying the word. And often, there is no one right answer except God's grace. He loves you. He's not going to judge you for a sincere but imperfect response to a difficult situation where there is no playbook. He's going to help you through. And as you rely on God's grace, you will become Sarah's children or Carol's or Sally's, Linda's, Judy's daughters. Daughters of the King. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace which enables us in all of our circumstances to walk by faith, to know that our imperfect but sincere efforts to please you are received with the joy of a, of a loving Heavenly Father. I pray that the women of the congregation who are married, I pray that they would be 
challenge and inspire this morning to double down in their commitments to be daughters of Sarah as the text appeals. And as we've seen, Sarah is far, far from perfect model. And yet she's held out for us as women. She's held out, Lord, as a picture. With all of her rough edges, a picture of a godly woman who pursues character and uses grace-based flexibility in life's uncertainties. We thank you for her, and we pray that you would continue to raise up for the young women of the church, the, the young girls and the teenagers and the college students, graduate students and others, Lord, who anticipate perhaps someday being married. We pray that you would even now be training and working in them. I pray that the older women of our church would mentor and love and shepherd these young girls and what it means to be a women of godly conduct in a relationship with a man. And Lord, as we will have uh, opportunity next week to focus on this more, but even now as we close in prayer, I pray as men at the church that we would uh, take to heart the high calling that our wives have been given and at least uh, meet them in this, if not seek to outdo them in our desire to be obedient as well. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.